Hello, Dallas Rogers here, and welcome to this special City Road podcast, podcast episode for the Amplify exhibition. And you're listening to the Outback Traders. This is a band that my guest today, Chris Gibson, is a part of. And today's conversation is all about the gentrification of the creative and music industries. Enjoy. I was just singing a song. I was just swinging you along. Come, little teardrop. Come, little teardrop, baby doll. Anyway, Chris Gibson, thanks for joining us in this Tin Sheds Gallery Amplify takeover that the City Road podcast is doing. And it's, of course, great to have you in the studio. There is so much happening up there today that we've actually taken over the old school City Road podcast studio downstairs. We've got you here because we want to talk about all things creative industries, creative industries in the city, and particularly how they affect the creative industries around things like music and rehearsal studios, and maybe some of the invisible infrastructures that go behind. We see a band at a pub, well, there's a whole bunch of invisible infrastructure that sits behind making that possible. But I guess also just those venues, those venues are under threat as well. So can you, maybe a great place to start here is with your ARC project and what you've been doing and the kind of like key proposition of that work. Yeah, sure. Um, So we have a project at the moment live, which is uh, looking at the experiences of creative workers, uh, which is pretty eclectic definition. We could talk about that later if you really want. but Let's talk about it now. Yep, sure. Quickly. So there's a whole debate around what, what we mean by the creative industries or cultural industries and um, but with things like music and theatre and art, that's pretty straightforwardly kind of creative if you could think of it that way. But it's actually a quite in, a sort of quite widespread, eclectic um, group of activities that involve some element of creativity, obviously, or semiotic content or craft content in the production of goods or in the delivery of services. This is me speaking like an economic geographer at the moment. Um, but it, the lovely thing about doing research and being a researcher of the creative industries and their geography in the city is that it's all the way from the sort of top end, film studios, whatever productions are on at the opera house, all the way through to amateurs and kids learning music in, you know, in school or... Uh, a music school and so forth. So choirs, community choirs. So it spans that full range from amateur activities that are really part of the human condition and part of being human and being expressive all the way through to formalised industries with careers, with companies, you know, professional accreditation and training and all of those sorts of things. So um, when we come to study the creative industries in a city and understand their geography... Um, it's important, I think it's important to keep that full spectrum in mind. And if you do that and you're trying to think about what would make a lively and creative city, now I'm not here just talking about their sort of economic contribution to the city, but 
in a general sense, like if we think of Sydney or Melbourne sort of creative places, we need to understand what enables the flourishing of those activities all the way from the top end, from the more business orientated end of the spectrum through to your amateur, what we call amateur, but you know, it's the creativity in everyday life. How many people are actually learning guitar or double bass or harp um, and participating in a community choir or, you know, painting for their own leisure, um, enjoying, you know, singing in a pub, what have you, um, as opposed to those that have actually got careers out of that. Really creative cities have that mix and they have the conditions to enable that flourishing across that full spectrum. And I guess then don't have to be connected. What's happening in people's bedrooms and learning to play guitar in your local school doesn't need to be connected to what's happening in the opera house, but it can be. Like, because of course you don't get to the opera house unless you pick up a guitar or something, you know, and start as a kid. So I, so I imagine there's the the building of professional capacities, the economics of it, but there's also just the playing music for the enjoyment, and all of those things can coexist and meet up, but they don't necessarily need to meet up as well. That's right. Years ago, there was like a textbook written about this, like back in the eighties, and it had a triangle, and the top of the triangle, you've got like. Bono or something, you know, like your professional musicians earning millions and squirrelling it away in tax havens in the Caribbean or what have you. Um, and then beneath that, you've got, you know, bands and musicians, let's say, this is just for music, they're doing pretty well, they're touring, they're, they're making an income out of it. And then at the bottom of the triangle, you've got everybody who's playing music, who's into music, who's learning an instrument or what have you. And the broader that base, the more healthy that triangle is, the bigger that triangle is, the more the more potential there is for people to develop careers out of that. So they're not necessarily related. You can happily play music all your life and never aspire to even get up on a stage and play, of course. But but places that enable the flourishing of creativity develop those pathways. And I suppose this is where our research comes in. We would say they places that enable that flourishing of creativity all the way up through... The, the you know the triangle they have spaces for that they have an infrastructure they have uh, an environment that's conducive to that kind of creativity and now there's lots of different sort of elements of that which we can unpack yep. I guess I do want to go into the field with you and I want you to get talk us through what it's like to research some of this some of this I know about and some I don't uh, but before we go there what are the headline takeaways from the project. Uh, yeah, okay. So we, well, we're sort of halfway through and we've been talking now specifically the projects around what the pandemic was like for creative workers and what's happening afterwards. So as has been pretty widely publicised, the creative industries were among the hardest hit in Australia uh, in particular because obviously you can't go and see bands or go to theatre productions and so forth when you have lockdowns and um, venue restrictions on numbers and all those sorts of things. Um, and I think tragically, but probably not accidentally, the you know the federal government were pretty unforgiving towards the creative sector in terms of making JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments available and providing that support. Um, very quickly when the pandemic struck, um, the creative sectors, like universities actually, were pretty quickly cast as not essential. Uh, there were lots of kind of details in the way those uh, support payments were made that made it quite hard for people to access. So we're hearing lots of stories around that and stories around how creative people across these different forms of, of, of creativity kept their 
kept themselves going basically. Some shifted to other forms of income. Others adapted and changed their strategies to try and reach audiences. Um, so there was some local council and state government support, a bit uneven around the country, but that certainly helped um, some people and certain, certainly some live music venues get through. And then since the pandemic, um, interestingly, the creative sectors have been looked at as part of the solution to kind of like re-enliven the city, right? So the CBD's only got 50, 60% occupancy now because everyone's working from home. How do we get the CBD's and main streets back up and, and running again and lively? Well, let's go to the creative sector. Let's look at live music, festivals. Um, so hung out to dry and now we need you. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much the story, yeah. yeah. And what about the spatial dynamics of this? Yeah, so that's that's where we come in, I guess, in particular because we're interested in where people are creative and what conditions produce that that kind of flourishing of creativity. Um, you could take us into the field yeah, now sure. if you want and talk us through what you've actually been doing. Yeah, so we've been out talking to musicians and theatre producers and drag performers and all sorts. And uh, what we do is sit down and have a chat just like what we're doing. Um, but when we do that, we also have a little interactive map on an, an iPad or a laptop in front of the person that we're talking to. And when the right kind of moment comes in in the story that we're hearing about the pandemic experience of creativity, what things were like before and during the pandemic and then now afterwards, we ask people to just draw or tell us on the map where they do what they do. Now, that might be a musician that rehearses at home, they compose at home, maybe they go to a, a bandmate's place to, uh, to practice in their kitchen or garage or they hire a rehearsal studio um, and then they perform at certain venues. So we're sort of mapping their, their creative working life. And what's sort of interesting about this approach is that we, we don't load into... Uh, we don't assume that any particular space is more or less important than another. So quite obviously, let's say if you're a musician, being able to perform if that's what you want to do is really important. So the, whether those venues are still going, whether they're lively, whether people are coming along to see them is a hugely important thing. And in the policy kind of space, that's where the emphasis has been lately. It's like we've got to make sure those live venues are still happening, get them up and running again, get people back into the city. Um, and that's great. And we support that kind of policy initiative. But what we're also documenting is all the what we call the backstage activities. So what's the... What's all the other stuff that happens so that a band can get up on stage live and perform? And it's actually what we would call a creative ecosystem or an ecology of spaces and activities. So the networking spaces, the guitar stores, um, the, rehearsal the, the rehearsal studios that enable you to be loud, for example, all of those things are also part of the city. They're also part of what enable that creative flourishing to take place. If you start to kind of um, delete those out of the landscape, it changes the way in which you are creative or where you go to access space and do certain things. Depends a little bit on what your activity is, of course, but um, it can make life harder if those things start to disappear. So another one of the kind of really key headlines for us, I guess, actually connects to earlier work that we've done as well, is that bit by bit in Sydney over time, as it's kind of rampant, real estate market's gone crazy, you know, for... Uh, you know, for quite some time now, really, um, is that we're seeing that we are seeing that kind of thing happen. We're seeing a displacement effect. We're seeing it harder and harder for people to access 
low cost space to do things like rehearse together. Uh, so you're is, talking about the Marrickville project where you looked at the light industrial spaces and the way that that's been gentrifying and affecting the creative industries. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So yeah, it does link back to earlier work that we did um, in 2017, 2018, where um, we were on the ground in a, in a couple of different industrial areas in Marrickville looking at the way in which old factories have been reused and repurposed. And uh, a lot of them were slated to be rezoned back then for residential apartments that would be not affordable housing, solving a housing crisis, but expensive stuff that would be going up and you know, sold at a premium. And the assumption was a lot of those old factories are kind of run down and they're not really serving any purpose. But actually they were hosting a lot of this kind of activity as well as small-scale manufacturing, um, a lot of unpretentious automotive work, for example. And there's this really weird but fantastic mix of stuff happening in these old industrial spaces on the ground. And uh, we, we published some research and that was pretty effective at the time in arguing for a different look at these industrial, these backspaces of creative production and, and maybe actually valuing them a little bit differently. So, and what did you, you find there? I was looking at a stat between, and we've got this up on the website actually, so on the Amplify website, and we'll put it up on City, uh, City Road Podcast as well, um, where you've got maps of this. But I think one stat in there stood out to me, and I think it's between 2013 and 2017, almost close to 50% of that light industrial stock is removed. Yeah, that's right. And it happened through rezonings, basically. So it is for redevelopment. Um, and some of that's wholesale. So it's like big chunks of industrial space get redeveloped in a, in a big go. Or it's what we call spot rezonings, which are like these nibbling away kind of at the edges of industrial space that can happen on a on an individual site or building. So, yeah, that's right. Sydney kind of lost nearly half of its inner city old industrial land to this redevelopment process. Interestingly, when we went to try and figure out, because we were like, oh, how, how much is this happening? Like, how much of this sort of st- stock of old buildings are we losing? Um, no one knew the answer to that. We went to various government departments, to local councils. You'd think it'd be the kind of thing that would be easily available online. So we actually had to painstakingly go through all of the individual decisions, all those little spot rezonings one by one and get into the maps and parcel them on the maps, put them into the maps to create this aggregate picture of industrial land loss over that time. So there's actually a pretty transforming, profound kind of pattern of change happening in Sydney with no one actually really watching what's going on, no one really tracking it and no one really understanding what the implications are, what the side effects of that might be for for the city. So that's where I guess yeah. our research has, has come in. And I, men- I imagine it operates at a number of scales. So there's local effects. There's quite a number, for example, of rehearsal studios ones that are operating like businesses, ones that are operating like not-for-profits, ones that just a few bands have like come together and hired a little space, just as an example. And then there's all the other businesses that, you know, little coffee roasteries and, you know, microbreweries and all these other things that exist there. I imagine that losing these spaces affects Marrickville, the place, but there's broader implications for the city as well because now you're pushing those activities either out of the city or further out of the city or to a new place. Yeah, that's right. And think if we, we use the analogy of the creative ecosystem, just hang with that for a second and think about that. It's like deforestation, right? It is like, you know, how if you want a lively forest ecosystem, you've got to try and protect 
the you know the, the forest areas that you have, you start to chip away at that, and the critters that are in that forest have to go find somewhere else to live. And at some point, the remaining forest isn't lively enough; it's not healthy enough to support the population it once could. And that's what I think we're seeing across Sydney. So it was pretty alarming actually when we did. We sort of went back and had a look at these uh, and mapped all the rehearsal studios just you know in the last few weeks leading up to this chat today um, and we wanted to get a sense of just updating from that earlier work that we'd done and yeah there have certainly been some that have we kind of knew anecdotally because some of us are musicians we use those studios so we sort of knew of some that had closed up or disappeared and there were what was particularly alarming actually for me personally is the story in western sydney so having grown up in outer western sydney and i I remember, I'm sure you were in the same boat, Dallas. Like, mm-hmm. I remember back in the, the sort of 1990s and 2000s and so on, like there were quite a few of these, yeah, yeah. Rec- you know, rehearsal studios. A, a, drift, a drift in Peachtree we used to go to behind the Peachtree Hotel. That's right. <laughs> yeah, there were all these, all these little spaces you could use and there would typically be one person who ran it and it was like their... They weren't making a lot of money out of it, and it was like their own little yeah, yeah. <laughs> empire. Sometimes the way they actually, you kind of had to know, you know, That's how right. to get into them and stuff. But uh, we really struggled to find um, examples of surviving rehearsal studios in Greater Western Sydney, which is quite alarming because there's actually a fair bit of light industrial space across Western Sydney. So, mm. um, and, and it's a d- culturally dynamic place. Like if there's a side of interesting, fascinating, productive cultural production. It's, it has to be Western Sydney. Yeah, exactly. And a huge population, right? Yeah. So again, the, the broad base of the triangle, like you need to have those kind of spaces. Now, it's there's a couple of things there that, you know, I, I might sort of temper that observation. Yeah. One is maybe we miss them. So maybe listeners know about things going on. They know about rehearsal spaces that we haven't yet found or that aren't online. They should so tell on. you about them. Yeah. So if, they, if you, by all means, if you're listening to this and on the website for the event, um, you can find a link through to our, our little maps and there's a link there you can click and please tell us about it because we want to make sure we've got as complete a picture as, as we can. The other thing that is changing, of course, is the advent of home production technologies and the ability to be able to make music at home has sort of changed the economics of some of these spaces because some of the what we call rehearsal studios are also spaces that people would want once have gone to to record as well as just rehearse, right? So that's kind of interesting. Uh, the rise of electronic dance music, hip-hop and so forth means that it's possible to make music at home, distribute that online. So that it's true I, that I, the I, nature of musical creativity is changing at yeah. the same time. And I think the way that people use rehearsal studios has changed. So I had a chat with a couple of people making some podcasts for this. And some of the longer-term rehearsal space owners said people would just come and jam and write songs in the rehearsal studios. Now they write it at home, they share files. Then they got a gig and they come in and punch out three or four days of practice to do their gig just because it's too expensive for them to hire the studios, which is a direct... connection to the land prices and the rents and yeah exactly exactly and look i'm in a couple of bands and i totally understand that we we try to stick to our kind of like weekly hire keep the spot and but you're right there is a sort of threshold price a rental price per week beyond which it just becomes untenable as a band to be able to keep on hiring it just to jam in and write songs in and so the hunt is always on for the 
the ways to sort of scrounge and save and, and find that low-cost space. And, yeah, Sydney's overall property market continues to just price everybody basically out other than the wealthy. It has a, a trickle-down effect to studios as well. So, you know, there's some great commercial re- re- rehearsal studios across Sydney, but they are expensive to hire and, and that's, that's a real problem. The other thing related to that too I'd probably add is that it's, it's uneven in the way that it affects musical acts of different sorts. So if you are a metal band, if you want a, a punk band, if you want to make some noise, if you're a larger classical ensemble or orchestral um, or choir, you need a different physical size of a space. So it's it can affect different forms of musical creativity very unevenly. Um, I actually don't think it's an accident that in the kind of expensive gentrified city, we do see the rise of the duo, the live music as just two people on stage without drums and bass, or if it is, it's kind of coming out of a computer um, where it can be mixed into the PA at a lower level. Um, I think that there's a kind of shift actually in the in the in the all the way from the venue all the way back to what people are producing that um, yeah reflects that to some degree. Mm. Also, could it be that just the nature of making music? One, we get this rise of digitization, which allows you to do stuff at home. And we becoming denser as cities. So you just can't yeah. bash your drums at home. So now yeah. Yeah. You, you write more stuff yeah. digitally and that becomes the kind of music landscape and then that, yeah. you know, flows into the city as well. Maybe. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, separate to this, we, interestingly, we had a, a PhD student some years ago, Sophie May Kerr, who's now a very active and quite well-known urban researcher. And her PhD project was looking at um, the experiences of families with kids who are living in apartments. And they had a, a particular sub-project looking at high-density living environments. And I was quite alarmed, actually. One of the things I remember Sophie May telling me about on the side of her research is that parents are uh, they're adapting and changing the way in which they bring up kids in relation to music and learning music living in apartments. So there's kids are not learning drums anymore. Um, they're, you know, they're not buying big electric guitar amps. They're, uh, they're learning quiet instruments. They're curtailing when their kids can learn their instruments so they don't annoy the neighbours. And it's partly to do with the design of apartments. They're not well acoustically designed, so sound bleeds in and out and, you know, of different apartments and through the levels of the apartment. And I guess so some forth. instruments, bassier instruments, the sound's going to travel more than you know, instruments that have got more top end. So I yeah. guess that just shapes what you learn to play. Yeah, it does. That's right. If you're still committed to your child learning to play. Yeah, or right. you, you yourself live in an apartment complex and you, you want to learn an instrument. What worries me is the possibility, again, think of the base of the triangle, what worries me is we might end up producing a mode of living, particularly with poorly designed, acoustically designed apartments, we might end up with a mode of living where actually we just shrink the base of that triangle, that, that the, 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 the enabling conditions for the flourishing of creativity shrink as a consequence of the built fabric which we're, we're turning towards. Mm. So if we just took Marrickville as a case study, if we had all of those rehearsal spaces there, they were protected, we would have space, even if our cities got denser, per, you know, to do that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's true. Uh, to an extent, I mean, I think the, you know, the what was the Greater Sydney Commission and um, certainly the City of Sydney and Inner West Council 
um, a couple of other councils as well, they're, they're aware of this problem and so they're keen to try and retain zoning yeah. that allows for the making of noise and the use. It's not just for music too, I, so I would say too, like the, you know, using chemicals and things like, like yeah. visual artists and sculptors oh, yeah. and so forth. Well, so. the City of Sydney has a rehearsal studio right in the CBD, which is That's right. fairly cheap. I've been there. Bad place for a drummer. You can't load in or load out anything. But also, uh, I think the NOS Council has pre- uh, got some pop-up sort of rehearsal spaces. So it's obviously on their agenda. Yeah, that's right, exactly. And so you're seeing, I think, more progressive levels of government who are concerned about and do want to support the creative industries taking that kind of more interventionist measure, I guess. Um, but you st- you're right. You st- there's the kind of issue of price, which we talked about earlier. There is this other little issue, though, as well, um, I guess it makes us musicians sound like we're fussy, but um, but you, you you need to find a parking space out the front. You, you can't go up six flights of stairs with your drums or your big <laughs> bass guitar amps and so forth. Um, it's there is a level of kind of impracticality that can be an issue there as well. So so it's difficult. Um, you know, I think there are uh, there are other models too. We years ago we were doing work on the south coast and in the Wollongong area, and I'm, I'm based at Wollongong Uni and. There's some pretty interesting stuff happening there with things like youth and community centres where for different reasons uh, and with funding through different mechanisms, there were rehearsal and recording studios set up, for example, for disadvantaged youth, for young Aboriginal kids and so forth. Um, So some of that technology can actually be set up and the you know, the rooms can be adapted reasonably cheaply actually to enable those rehearsal spaces to be provided. And it was in what otherwise you might walk past and not even realise. It's just like a, an old bit run-down community centre in Nara, for example. But in there are young Aboriginal kids making hip-hop, making music and doing really cool stuff. So there's a lot of that, what we think might think of as redundant community infrastructure that's still actually around and in the city. And um, some of that can also be repurposed for these sorts of, you know, cheap um, space. You just need the space often um, and and to not be priced out. So it is possible for, I think, some of those measures to be implemented at a very grassroots scale and often with not that much cost involved. Mm. want to talk a little bit about where your research is going in a sec, but I did want to bring up noise complaints and just noise in the city. So... The kind of classic example here is you have a pub, the Annandale Hotel. It's been a pub forever. Multiple generations of people have seen bands there. Then all of a sudden it gentrifies. People move in and now they're complaining about the noise coming from the pub, which is a product of many things, but population increases and density itself are probably key here, but probably changing attitudes to noise. Any reflections on that coming from your work? Yeah, sure. Um, well, again, you can think of it in terms of like the stage spaces like venues and the back spaces that we've been talking about mostly this morning. In terms of those venue spaces, that's an, a kind of a long-running debate and it's definitely connected to the gentrification story. I remember back in the 90s it was a huge deal. The Whitlams were singing about, you know, the loss of venues to pokies and noise complaints in the inner city and so forth. Um, that's an ongoing debate. I mean, there is, there is, there are a few policy moves happening around that, particularly in the post-pandemic period. So there's this move towards entertainment and nightlife precincts, for example. So there was a, a case in Enmore Road that's being quite commonly cited as being quite successful, where um, you know they're relaxing 
things around noise and licensing and so forth to kind of um, just basically make it harder for grumpy local residents in their $2 million terrace to complain about the noise. Um, and it's pretty effective. That has worked on the venue side of things. And I suspect we're going to see more and more of that from a regulation point of view when it comes to venues. But it's the other side of it too. The, uh, again, if you think about the triangle, that's only kind of working at the top of the triangle, the top of the pyramid. What about the base? What about all of the backstage stuff that's got to occur? Uh, you still need spaces to make noise, to rehearse, to practice. And, you know, it's often like sounds really bad when you're just like writing a song or you're learning the drums to start with. Um, So those issues can become more and more amplified in those backstage spaces. And so that's why I think you do actually need to have these kind of collectivised spaces like rehearsal spaces, whether they're community provided or they're bands making a collective, they're in old factories and industrial space and so forth. I think that's, that's, yeah, that's... That's a that's a really tricky one, um, and you know. So, so is making visible the invisible part of this project? Making the ecosystem yeah. fully visible and saying you can't just have the amazing yeah. nightlife precinct without the whole infrastructure that's not in that precinct. Sometimes, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, you can. Again, if you want to think of the forest metaphor, you can have the amazing macaw. You can have the beautifully flowering orchid that's sort of, uh, you know, on the side of a tree, but you need all the shrubs and all the little critters you don't normally see that make up that diverse ecosystem that's all very interconnected. And it's the, it's the same within in a city. Yeah. Mm. To wrap up, where is this work going? You're only halfway through? Yeah, that's right. So we are at a point where we will be revisiting the people that we've talked to already and um, and finding out how they're going now a year on from when we first interviewed them and, and just looking at what's happening in the city and how those creative lives are changing. Um, we're all in- hearing interesting stories and divergent stories from different kind of parts of the community. So... Um, theatre for example interestingly is having somewhat of a renaissance as people particularly younger people I think are pretty keen to actually get out to go out right to sit in a room with people on stage performing in the flesh so that's pretty interesting kind of turnaround so that's a little thread that we're we're following in more detail Um, but others are still struggling and you know again those sort of bigger pressures of the city and housing affordability and the difficulties of earning a wage through a creative um, pursuit uh, still still pretty profound and so um, what we hope to do is yeah get a picture about the degree to which the city's bouncing back after the the creative life of the city's bouncing back after the pandemic um, and come up with a series of sort of policy stories really um, for the public and for people in government and so forth to engage with and um, have a dialogue with them. And the rehearsal space story is one of those. So that's why we've produced this little story online with the maps and so on to get a bit of a, a conversation going. Hey, thanks so much for coming down and chatting with us today. Thanks, Dallas. Go make some noise.